0: Awesome. How are you doing, Crossing Church? Are you doing okay today? Oh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord, with the people of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, because He's here. He promised that He would be here with us. I want to welcome all of our campuses joining together with us all across this region. If you are inside or online, we are so thankful for each and every one of you as well. And uh, we are still in camp season. Got done with fourth and fifth grade camp Last week, I was, I was there, and I uh, was in the barn where uh, below is the, the men's dorms, <coughs> and uh, went into the bathroom and, uh, uh, to do what you do in the bathroom, and uh, there are also uh, uh, showers in there, and uh, I could hear uh, uh, one of the fourth or fifth graders uh, in the shower singing, get up, get up, get up. Get up out of that, great. And I was going to myself, that's exactly what it's about. I mean, we're just being able to plant those truths into the hearts of young people uh, starting this Friday, uh, is Fuse Camp, and you know how many uh, young people make decisions for Christ in their junior high years, and so I want you to be praying that God would uh, do something incredible, miraculous that week at camp, coming up, be praying for each and every one of them. Well, we're in a new series for three weeks. It's called The Other Side. And uh, we're going to talk about heaven, hell, and judgment. And for some reason, Clayton wanted hell and judgment. I don't know why you can ask him about that, but that left me with heaven, and I'm excited to preach about heaven today. It's going to be awesome to be able to share that with you today. So when you're thinking of heaven, a lot of times people think about death. They think about funerals. Because that's where you hear about heaven, which is kind of sad that you hear about heaven in those depressing circumstances. But it reminded me of a story of a pastor who was encouraged to do a funeral. It was in a metropolitan area, and uh, uh, a man came in, wanted to have a meeting with the senior pastor about doing the funeral for his brother. Now, the problem was that this man was part of a family of organized crime, and they were known in the community as just doing horrible things, terrible things. And uh, as bad as this man that came in to see the pastor was, his brother was worse. Uh, he was the head of the family, and he had just died, which I, I'm sure a lot of people thought was a blessing. And uh, And so this other brother, living brother, is trying to find a place to do his funeral. And so nobody wants to do his funeral because what are you going to say about this guy? I mean, you're going to Preach him into hell. That's not going to be any fun. So nobody wants to do it. So this guy goes to this particular pastor's office and says that he would like for him to do the funeral. And uh, furthermore, he said, what I want you to say is that he was a saint. And the pastor's like, how can you expect me to do that? I mean, the, the reputation of this man goes without saying. Everybody knows. I mean, that's just crazy to say that. And he goes, listen, pastor, if you'll do that, if you'll say he was a saint... I will donate a million dollars to this church. So the pastor found a way to say yes, which tells you about pastors, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, he said, okay, I'll I'll do do the the service. And so, you know, the the day came and everybody came in and everything set up and the flowers and the body and the casket and, you know, the funeral directors and all of that. And it came time for the pastor to get up, and he begins to preach, and he doesn't hold anything back. I mean, he preaches about how terrible of a man this was. And in the first couple of rows, uh, that hisses the family, and you can just see the agitation on their faces, the anger, especially the brother. Like, this is not what I paid for, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And he kept going, and he culminated the sermon by saying, but compared to all of you in the first couple of rows, this man was a saint. (laughs) Cha-ching. So we just concluded a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And in chapter 3, verse 11, it says something pretty amazing about this. It says that God has set eternity into the hearts of mankind. I really believe that's true. I think there's something inside every single one of you that's listening to me, watching me right now, that knows that. That God has set eternity into your hearts. Like, you know that this isn't all there is. You know that there's something more. Something. Maybe you can't describe it, you can't quantify it, but you know that it's there. But when I was uh, preaching in West Central Indiana... One of the elders of that church, his brother passed away and I went to meet them at the hospital. He had already passed and uh, the brother came out of the room uh, where his brother had died and he looked at me and he was trying to console himself or comfort himself and what he said was, you know, this is just natural. It's just natural. That dying is just as natural as being born. It's just a natural part of life. And you know, I wanted to comfort this, uh, this elder, but inside my heart, even though I didn't say it out loud, I was saying, no, it isn't natural. There was something inside of me that was saying, that's just absolutely not true. As a matter of fact, there is something terribly unnatural about it. Those of you that have faced the death of a loved one, a friend, a family member, you know that there's something inside of you that's just that's just kind of in denial, does, doesn't want to accept that, saying that there's something wrong here, something very wrong about it. And you know what? That idea, that thought in your mind is a right thought. It's not a wrong thought. Because you weren't made for that. You were not made for death. You were made for life. When you think about it, in the book of Genesis, you were created in the in the garden. We were created, our ancestors were created to be immortal in the garden, mortality came into the world because of a curse, because of sin. That's what God said. In the day that you eat of that tree that was you are not to eat of, you will surely die. You'll be separated from me. And that's recorded in Genesis chapter three, and it serves as a constant reminder reminder to each of us who we have become: immortal to mortal. And so it begs this question about heaven. Now, in the secular world, there's been commentary about that, lots of different ways, in music especially. And I can think of one song that kind of stands out for me, and it's one that John Lennon wrote. And some people would say it was the greatest song he ever wrote. And it's the song Imagine. Now, most of us are familiar with the song Imagine. It gets played a lot, even today. But I want you to think of the words, especially the first verse, where it says, Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Now when I hear that, it actually is very depressing. It's very discouraging to me. He then describes a world that might be reshaped and bring the realities of what we perceive as heaven into the world if if you would join him and his effort in creating this worldly utopia. But the problem is in the song is, is the word we. And as long as we are in the mix there's going to be a problem right? Because we're sinners. Now there's a far lesser known musician his name is Bart Millard and he was actually recalling this destructive upbringing that he had had uh, because of his father and the reconciliation he had with his father and then his father's death from cancer. But before he died, he was radically transformed by Jesus Christ. And some of you have seen that movie that I'm describing, but the song came long before the movie. And it has nearly the same name as John Lennon's song, I Can Only Imagine. And I have to tell you, when I hear that song, it's a lot more positive to me than John Lennon's. So I want us to ask ourselves a few questions today about heaven. Okay, here's the first one. Is it real? Is heaven a real place? Is this a fantasy that we just feed ourselves because we're so uncomfortable about our mortality? Or is it real? Well, I would say absolutely it's real. It's as real as God is, it's as real as Jesus is, it's as real as truth is. As a matter of fact, it's mentioned over 500 times in the Bible, 50 times just in the book of Revelation alone. There were different authors that, were actually, that actually experienced part of heaven, and they wrote about it in your Bible. Isaiah saw it, wrote about it. The Apostle Paul wrote about it. John wrote about it when the apostle Paul saw it. Uh, this is how he described it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 2 to 4. He said, "I know a man in Christ, that's him in the third person he's referring to himself, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven." While it was whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows was caught up to paradise, listen to this, and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Wow, that, that just kind of whets the appetite, doesn't It just kind of heightens the mystery. What did he see? What was incredible that he saw? Well, we don't have to wonder. That doesn't have to stay a mystery. Like I said, Isaiah saw it. And John saw it as well. And they all wrote about it. We got descriptions of it in the Bible. When Isaiah saw it, he wrote about it. And he talked about the throne room. That was what he saw. It's in Isaiah 6, 1-4. He writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, those are a form of angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of His glory. The sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Well, the picture here is just so absolutely beyond us or above us, isn't it? Wow. It certainly was for Isaiah, because as you continue to read in Isaiah 6, you find out that that he loses all of his strength. He realizes that he has no business being there. He feels like he's undone, and an angel has to actually go through a process to give him the strength to receive the revelation that God's going to give him. Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, is even more descriptive. John writes, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. So he's described, God is described more in terms of light and color than in physicality. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne, seven Lamps were blazing, and these are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal, and in the center and around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, meaning all seeing, in front and in back. You know, John had to be prepared for this vision because he had already passed out. We read that in Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18. When he sees Jesus in his exalted, glorified form, he writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Wow. You know, Jesus and John, during that three years of Jesus' ministry, they were best friends. And in heaven, John doesn't even recognize him. He's so glorified. He has to identify himself to John. Is heaven real? You bet. What's it like? Isn't that the next question? What's heaven like? You know, Jesus contemplating this on the eve of his death, celebrating Passover with his disciples, he says these words in John 14, 2-4, to, four, two to four, he says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you also may be where I am. Now, that's even hard for me to say because I memorized it in the King James Version. And I still say that in funerals. It goes like this. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also." You see the difference in those two passages of scriptures in their translation? Don't you like the King James Vetter? Wouldn't you rather have a mansion than a room? Come on! Many mansions, and all of a sudden I get demoted to a room. What is this? Like a condo? An apartment? I don't know. Kind of bugs me. Well, maybe it's because we don't understand the culture of the time in Israel and how people lived during that time. Jesus said, you know the place where I'm going. Well, if you ever travel to Israel and you go to the hometown of Jesus, that would be Capernaum, you'll see the ruins of uh, all of these buildings. And they're all kind of connected, and it's strange to look at You kind of wonder, like to picture, what, what kind of a building was this? Well, it's what archaeologists call an insula. Now, what an insula is, is a building that the patriarch of of the family built. As far back as the family lived there, there was someone who built a house. And then, as many sons as that patriarch had, when they would be betrothed to uh, a bride-to-be, they would come back and they would add on to their father's house. They would basically build their home attached to the father's home. And you can imagine, after generation, after generation, after generation, these things would expand and they would get bigger and bigger and bigger because everyone in the family lived together. Some of you are going, that's really awesome. Some of you are going, that just freaks me out. I know that, but that was the culture. So when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, they were understanding what he was saying. And when he said, I go to prepare a place for you, He was using wedding language, identifying himself as a bridegroom, coming back for his bride after the work was done. You see, Jesus isn't describing many mansions. He's describing a single mansion that has enough room for everyone. That's not so bad. God would rather not live with you in the neighborhood down the street. He wants you to be in his house with him. When the Apostle Paul talks about living on earth, and I know some of you have some pretty nice houses, but when Paul talks about living on earth, he describes our dwelling as a tent. And the reason he calls it a tent is because it's temporary. Everything on earth is very temporary. Now, I don't want to mistake a tent for my eternal home. But that's what we do when we don't understand that we're actually living in our Father's house. You know, when... When God was dwelling with mankind on earth in the Old Testament, He commissioned the building of a tent called the tabernacle. That was the temple. It was designed to be put away, rolled up, carried somewhere else, set back up. Because it was never supposed to be permanent. Just a shadowy image of what is in heaven. Just a temporary place where God would dwell with His people. But when we talk about heaven, we're talking about an eternal place. You know, Abraham, the patriarch, lived in tents his whole life. And in Hebrews chapter 11, he said that he was content to live in tents because he was looking for something greater. A building with foundations, he said, whose architect and builder is God. Now, when we get into God's word... We get the opportunity to see what Jesus has been working on. Remember, the Bible says that nothing that was made was made without Jesus. He was responsible for what, everything that was made. So it took him six days to create this wor- world, right? He's been working on your house for 2,000 years. You think about that. Ever since he ascended into heaven. And this is the permanent home for us to dwell in together. One of the beautiful things, and of course, there are so many beautiful things on this earth, right? That we marvel at when we see them. The, whether it's animals or, or plants or trees or sunsets or whatever. Even what God has shown us in this cursed world is pretty incredible. But in heaven, you are part of the architecture. You are. How, how is that possible? I mean, it's made for you. It's an incredible description that how God puts everything together. And we read it in uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. He says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with mankind and he'll live with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. As beautiful as a place can be when we think about the architecture of the building that God describes through John in the book of Revelation it's still not a home it's just a a place. What makes it a home is when people dwell in it. And that's part of you, being part of the architecture along with God. You know, here at the 48th Street location, and other locations, we have a baptistry. At our baptistry over here, uh, there is a, like an artistic depiction of stones kind of in the air, and you, you can see that if they were to be pushed down, that they would complete a wall. That's what we see over here to my right. And there's a scripture there, and there's over 60 scriptures about baptism in the Bible, but we chose a different scripture for that wall. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Because it says this, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house you're part of the architecture of heaven to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ to me it's the best and it's the most personal description that really ties everything together in the word of God this is the culmination of what Jesus said in Matthew 16:18 when he told his apostles, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it or overcome it. Well, it's a beautiful picture, but it's still kind of up here, kind of up in the clouds a little bit, you know, a little hard to grasp. So maybe some of you are asking a third question today, and that is, can you, can you be more specific? Can you give me something a little bit more concrete to understand it a little bit better? No problem. The Bible does that. We're going to go on and read a little bit more in Revelation 21 starting in the second part of verse 9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It's shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, with twelve angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the land. Now, it goes on to describe this in much greater detail if you want to read through Revelation 21. But I'm just going to highlight some things, alright? First of all, it's described as shining with the glory of God. Now, in those earlier descriptions, God was he was described more out of light and color than in a physical way. And it is the brilliance of the glory of God that gives light to this city. John describes the city when we read further on as a cube, actually, in the form of a cube. And there's a measuring rod where an angel actually measures the size of it, and it's given to us. If we convert it to miles, it's 1,400 miles wide. 1400 miles long and 1400 miles high. And some of you, when we get finite like that, you're going, Is that enough room for everybody? Can we fit in that? I just encourage you to uh, multiply 1400 by 1400 by 1400. So I don't know what kind of space I'm going to get. How big's my room? How big's my room in the insula? Well, let's just pretend. That it's a mile long and a mile high and a mile wide. That's a pretty big space, isn't it? Do you know how many people that would fit if everybody got a room that big? 2,744,000,000. That's plenty of room. That's all I'm saying. It has high walls which describe how it is totally safe and totally secure. That God protects His bride, his people. Has 12 gates, three on each side. Each one made of a single pearl, it says. It's where we get the term pearly gates, if you've ever heard that term before. Each one is named, has a name over it, for one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then there's an angel that's stationed, keeping guard at each gate. But the gates are open and they remain open. What does all that mean? Help me to understand that. The fact that they're made from a single pearl is a reference to the kingdom of God. Do you remember the story that Jesus told about the pearl of great price? See, there's only one way you can enter into the kingdom. It's through the gospel of Jesus. That's what he said in John fourteen six. I am the way. And then later on he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And then describes him and the kingdom as the pearl of great price. The one that we would give everything else up for to have that one. He describes himself to his apostles as the gate for the sheep or the door of the sheep. The only way into heaven is through Jesus. Just like he said in John 14. The fact that those gates face in every direction is a reminder for us that the gospel isn't just for some people, it's for everyone. That the kingdom is open for everyone. They carry the names of the 12 tribes of Israel because that is how God chose to bring Jesus into the world. They're guarded with angels because that's happened ever since the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life was guarded by angels. It has 12 foundations, and each foundation is named for one of the 12 apostles because the kingdom is built on the truth that they received from Jesus and what they shared with the world. That's what the crossing stands on. It stands on the foundation of the apostles, or what Acts 2.42 calls the apostles' doctrine. The Old and the New Testaments come together in this beautiful architecture. All reminders of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And even though there's a throne in this New Jerusalem, there is no temple because we are the temple of God. In Revelation 22, we begin to get a tour of the inside of the city. There is a throne in the center with a river flowing out from it in all directions and that river flows with the water of life. The Bible then goes on to describe that the tree of life has been planted on either side of that river as it flows from the throne and it provides fruit for food and leaves. And it says for the healing of nations. Wow. What an incredible description. Now do you think that John was like on mushrooms or I mean, or do you believe that it's true? Would God lie to you? Would he tell you something that wasn't true? When Jesus said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, did he mean it? See that's what's so important that you understand the substantial truth here that this is true, this is real. I want to contrast that to a movie that came out in 2010 called Avatar. How many of you saw the movie Avatar when it came out? Yeah. And it describes a planet by the name of Pandora and all of these incredible things that happened. Do, do you realize, and you probably don't, but that moviegoers went to see the movie Avatar, were so enthralled with what they witnessed that they became depressed and even suicidal? because of their desire to live on a fictional planet. There was even a website created that provided ways for moviegoers to cope with the depression that they were feeling. How sad, how incredibly sad that people can so quickly become hopelessly attached to a fictional place produced by human imagination and a whole lot of CGI... And not know that there's a very real place beyond their wildest dreams where they could have an eternal home. Last thing I want to share with you. Last question. How will I be changed? How would you be changed? Well, I'm going to have a new body. Thank you, Lord. The one that I was meant to have before mortality. I'm going to have a mind to go with it that's going to be indestructible and unchangeable, and it will be as unique as I am and unique as you are. It'll be free from the influences of this world. No death, no crying, no mourning, no pain. I will get to see the people that I love, not only redeemed in Jesus, but fully recreated by Him, even as I have been. Why do people want to live in a Pandora And get depressed when they are reminded that it isn't real. Well, because down deep we all know that we were meant for something better. God has set eternity into the hearts and minds of mankind. Why don't we get it? Why don't we latch on to it? Because we are literally saturated in the lower story. I mean, our lives are taken up by it. Look at what we're arguing about today. Okay, just right now. What's on the news? What decisions are coming from the Supreme Court? What issues are you going to be voting on? Police? Abortion? School choice? Guns? Prayer? Racism? Discrimination? Healthcare? Vaccines? Pandemics? Depression? Depression? Social media, church fighting, suicide, same-sex marriage, identity issues, housing concerns, supply chain issues, inflation, gas prices, school shootings, debt, fentanyl, immigration issues, theological debates, temptation, separation anxiety, loneliness. None of that exists in the upper story. Not one. It's all in the lower story. We all get so worked up about things that in heaven have passed away. Let me tell you what's important right now. And I'm going to encourage you to vote in a minute. Right now, the gate is open for you. Angel stands guard making sure it stays open. For you in the kingdom, you can claim the citizenship that Jesus bought for you when he died on a cross, not for his sin, but yours. When he paid your debt and my debt in full, when he was buried in a borrowed tomb and rose again on the third day, not only to be alive, but to prove to you that he could raise you from death to life. To show you that the things of this earth are temporary, but there is an eternal reality that waits for you. And even more than that, Jesus waits for you. Vote. Vote for Jesus. Vote for Jesus because He's worthy. He earned it, He paid it all. We're moving to a time of decision. (sighs) I cannot tell you how much. I would love for you to have the knowledge of eternity in your heart. Of what it is. Of where it is. Of who's there. And why they're there. I don't want you to cling on to empty wishes. And foundationless hopes and dreams. I want you to be able to set your foot on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and that happens when you come into an intimate personal relationship with him as hard as it may be for us to grasp the majesty of heaven we can grasp a hold of him and if you've never taken hold of Jesus and allow him to take hold of you And enter in that relationship that will take you all the way to and through those gates into eternity. I invite you today to accept that invitation and come to Christ. There's going to be someone right over here by the baptistry. Right next to that Peter scripture, chapter 2, verses 4 to 5 willing to facilitate what only God can do and that as a living stone graft you in to his eternal temple for his glory as he raises a mighty cathedral for his praise. Nobody is standing in your way because the gates are open except for you. And if we can just get out of our own way, and trust in Him. He'll take care of the rest. Many of us here today, we're believers in Jesus Christ. But don't try to lie to yourself and think that you aren't affected and infected by this lower story. That there's all sorts of things that are swirling around in your heart and mind right now that are trying to take this prime real estate of your heart that belongs to Solely to Jesus Christ. He tells you, don't set your mind on things below, but set your mind and your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We spend way too much time talking about down here when we need to be thinking that we're citizens up there. We've got something waiting for us and someone waiting for us so much better. And if you're burdened, Maybe, with, maybe they're your burdens. Maybe they're somebody else's burdens. But if you feel heavy and weighted down by the situations and circumstances of this life, I encourage you to come up to these steps. Get down on your knees and say, I believe in a God who can take my burden. I believe in a God who is passionate and compassionate loves me knows me and won't forget me leave or forsake me and if you come down and humble yourself as the 24 elders in heaven as the angels as the four living creatures you humble yourself before God I will guarantee you that when you get up from your knees from these steps you will be lighter than when you went down onto them. Because that is what God does. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. In Jesus' name, Heavenly Father, we pray right now that there wouldn't be anything to pull us away, anything to distract our hearts and minds from what it is that your Holy Spirit wants to do in this moment. Help us, Father, to have ears that are sensitive to the still small voice speaking telling his children, come on home. In Jesus' name, amen.